This is the fourth and final Sunday in our series on shame. To recap, the first Sunday I talked, and I talked about shame as disconnection. When we look in the mirror, we see and we hear a reflection of all the times that we've, told, that we've been told that we've failed, that we're not worthy or lovable. But the invitation of God is to true intimacy, to knowing and being known in relationships that reveal and honor our true worth and beauty. And if we do that, we will see that this image that we see in the mirror where we're not perfect, we're not good enough, that's actually just a crack in the mirror. The second Sunday, Ben confronted the lies of the scarcity mindset, the myth that we're never good enough or strong enough for doing enough to earn love and worth. Ben reminded us of the futility of comparing ourselves to others, to comparing ourselves to some imagined ideal self, and instead invited us to talk about our shame with trusted partners and to cultivate practices of gratitude. Last week, Sam Berg reminded us that shame drives us into hiding, but God calls us out of hiding by asking us to reflect honestly on ourselves and our relationships. And that wherever we are, God meets our vulnerability in grace, not judgment. Today, we continue that invitation to move away from shame and darkness towards the light and joy and goodness of authentic, honest, and vulnerable relationship. We're going to begin with some words from sociologist and shame researcher Brene Brown from her TED Talk about shame. For those of you who don't know, um, TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And TED Talks are conferences where experts in those fields gather to share their ideas worth spreading. So she's talking to a room that's full of brilliant, creative, successful people, and she talks with them about shame. There's a great quote that saved me this past year by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, A lot of people refer to it as the man in the arena quote. And it goes like this, it is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when he's in the arena at best, he wins. And at worst, he loses. But when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that's what this conference to me is about. That's what life is about, about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in and I'm going to try this, Shame is the gremlin who says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that MBA. Your wife left you. I know your dad really wasn't in Luxembourg. He was in Sing Sing. I know there's things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think that you're pretty enough or smart enough or talented enough or powerful enough. I know your dad never paid attention even when you made CFO. Shame is that thing. And then if we can quiet it down and walk in and say, I'm going to do this, we look up and the critic that we see pointing and laughing 99% of the time is who? Us. Shame drives two big tapes, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? 
I saw the TED Fellows my first day here, and he got up and he explained how he was driven to create some technology to help test for anemia because people were dying unnecessarily. And he said, I saw this need, so you know what I did? I made it. And everybody just burst into applause, and they were like, yes! And he said, and it didn't work. <laughs> and then I made it 32 more times. And then it worked. You know what the big secret about TED is? I can't wait to tell people this. I, I guess I'm doing it right now. Um, <laughs> this is like the failure conference. <laughs> no, it is. You know why this place is amazing? Because very few people here are afraid to fail. And no one that gets on the stage so far that I've seen has not failed. I have failed miserably many times. I don't think the world understands that because of shame. The other thing you need to know about shame is it's absolutely organized by gender. If shame washes over me and washes over Chris, it's going to feel the same. Everyone sitting in here knows the warm wash of shame. We're pretty sure that the only people who don't experience shame are people who have no capacity for connection or empathy. Which means, yes, I have a little shame, no, I'm a sociopath. So I would opt for, yes, you have a little shame. Shame feels the same for men and women, but it's organized by gender. For women, the best example I can give you is Anjali, the commercial. I can put the wash on the line, pack the lunches, hand out the kisses, and be work at five to nine. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and never let you forget you're a man. For women, shame is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. I don't know how much perfume that commercial sold, but I guarantee you it moved a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. <laughs> Shame for women is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. And it's a straitjacket. For men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one. Do not be perceived as what? Weak. I did not interview men for the first four years of my study, and it wasn't until a man looked at me one day after a book signing and said, I love what you have to say about shame. I'm curious why you didn't mention men. And I said, I don't study men. And he said, that's convenient. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, because you say to reach out, tell our story, be vulnerable. But you see those books you just signed for my wife and my three daughters? I said, yeah. They'd rather me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall down. When we reach out and be vulnerable, we get the shit beat out of us. And don't tell me it's from our, the guys and the coaches and the dads. Because the women in my life are harder on me than anyone else. So I started interviewing men and asking questions. And what I learned is this. You show me a woman who can actually sit with a man in real vulnerability and fear, I'll show you a woman who's done incredible work. You show me a man who can sit with a woman who's just had it, she can't do it all anymore, and his first response is not, I unloaded the dishwasher. 
but he really listens, because that's all we need. I'll show you a guy who's done a lot of work. If we're gonna find our way back to each other, we have to understand and know empathy, because empathy is the antidote to shame. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we're in struggle, me too. And so I'll leave you with this thought. If we're going to find our way back to each other, vulnerability is going to be that path. And I know it's seductive to stand outside the arena because I think I did it my whole life and think to myself, I'm gonna go in there and kick some ass when I'm bulletproof and when I'm perfect. And that is seductive. But the truth is, that never happens. And even if you got as perfect as you could and as bulletproof as you could possibly muster, when you got in there, that's not what we wanna see. We want you to go in. We wanna be with you and across from you. And we just want for ourselves and for the people we care about and the people we work with to dare greatly. So thank y'all very much. If we're gonna find our way back to each other, vulnerability is our path. And before I talk a little bit more about vulnerability, I wanna talk about this concept of living wholeheartedly. What does whole, living wholeheartedly mean? Wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. And we talked about that, about, uh, that a couple weeks ago in the Never Enough piece, Scarcity. It's about going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change truth that I am also brave and worthy of love of belonging. It's about saying no to the prerequisites of, for worthiness, which we also touched on a couple weeks ago. I'll be worthy when I lose 20 pounds. I'll be worthy if I can get pregnant. I'll be worthy if I get and stay sober. I'll be worthy if everyone thinks that I'm a good parent. I'll be worthy if everyone thinks that I'm a good Christian. I'll be worthy when my parents finally approve. I'll be worthy if he calls me back and asks me out. I'll be worthy when I can do it all and look like I'm not even trying. Wholeheartedness means I am worthy now, not if and when. We are worthy of love and belonging now, right this minute, as is. So how do we get to this, wor uh, get to this place of worthiness? By practicing courage, compassion, and connection in our daily lives. Mary Daly, a theologian, writes, courage is like um, habitus, a habit, a virtue. You get it by courageous acts. It's like you learning to swim by swimming. You learn courage by couraging. It's the same for compassion and connection. We invite compassion into our lives by acting compassionately towards ourselves and others. We connect when we reach out and connect with others. But to get to that place of practice, it requires vulnerability. To expand a bit on what we heard last week, vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. What is the number one myth we associate with vulnerability? Does someone here have a question? I have an idea what that is, what that myth is. I'm gonna give you a hint. Vulnerability is, does someone take a guess? Anyone, anyone? 
Ah, there we go, answered the friend. Weakness, vulnerability is weakness. Someone the other day said to me, uh, when I was talking about what I was going to be sharing about, so I'm going to talk, talk a little about vulnerability, and they said to me, vulnerability, that feels super shitty. <laughs> and so we associate vulnerability with this awful feeling, a dark emotion. Vulnerability isn't good or bad, it's not a dark emotion, nor is it always light. Vulnerability is the core of emotions and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. And to believe vulnerability is weakness is to believe that feeling is weakness. But what is vulnerability, really, in practice, day to day? Sharing an unpopular opinion, preaching and public speaking, asking for help, saying no, starting your own business, helping a partner who is dying make decisions about their will, initiating sex, hearing how much someone wants to make the volleyball team, encouraging them, and knowing that they're not going to make it. Signing up a parent for hospice care, saying I love you and, knowing not, and not knowing if they're going to say I love you back. Getting a promotion when you feel like you don't deserve it. Getting fired. Getting pregnant after a few miscarriages. Bringing a new boyfriend home. Waiting for a biopsy to come back. Admitting you're afraid. Laying off employees. Presenting an idea and getting no response. Standing up for friends when someone else is critical. Asking for forgiveness. Having faith. Does this sound like weakness? Does showing up to be with someone who's in a deep struggle sound like weakness? Is accepting accountability weakness? No, it's not. None of these are weakness. Vulnerability is the pathway back to each other. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. Vulnerability is critical for empathy. It is reaching down into our experiences like the ones I've listed above and referencing them for those critical Me Too conversations. It allows us to be where people are at and to have those empathetic moments that can help us move through our shame. We need our vulnerability to access empathy we need vulnerability to build resilience to shame, and we need vulnerability to live wholeheartedly. Joe. This path to living wholeheartedly has an interior component as well as an exterior one. In my first sermon on shame, I introduced you to Hilary McBride. Um, she's a therapist from Vancouver. We listened to part of her talk with the Liturgist podcast. Here's Hillary again from later on in that same talk. So if we go back to what I was saying when I first started talking, shame is about the fragmentation in a relationship and the experience of aloneness or being devalued. But you can, you can create a relationship within yourself. You can be with yourself. And you can be with yourself in a way that is loving and present and attuned and giving and names pain and sits with pain and says, I see you. And you can come with me. Nerves, I see you. You're with me, but you can come with me to the liturgist gathering tonight. You can come under my blazer. You can sit right here in my pocket. And in doing so, creating a relationship with yourself, which isn't the same as being with someone and feeling them look back at you and say, I see you but it's a pretty good start if that's what you have.
You can relate to yourself in a way that's shaming. It's the, it's the internalization of the oppressor that, oppressor that shames us, that lashes us inside, but we can change that relationship. Like that quote, I learned shame in a relationship, but I do it all by myself now because it's the internalization of what will other people think of me that creates this wounding that we perpetuate within us, and we can change that relationship in a way that represents what a relationship with an other would be like. And so as we'll do in a little bit, often what I have people do is I have them connect inward with the relationship inside with their body, with their thoughts, and change that relationship to a dyadic conversation that is actually loving and supportive and accepting and non-judgmental, which is the piece. I see you there, fear. Oh, I see you there, ego. You're working super hard to be loved. Okay, I see you. And even if nobody else does, we got this. Mm. So working on that inner relationship is important, um, but that takes an incredible amount of attunement and presence and, and stillness and self-awareness uh, to be able to notice your feelings as they come up and to be able to be just outside of them enough that you can be compassionate to those feelings. I often say to clients, feelings are just information. You don't need to be scared of them. You don't need to be scared of shame. It's just an artifact of a relationship you once had where something kind of like what's happening now made you feel unlovable. It's just information. And that's information you can use to understand yourself and the world and being alive much better. You don't need to be afraid of it. It's kind of ironic that our culture shames people for talking to themselves. And really, we all do it in some form or other. And it, how we talk to ourselves is quite important. Really, that's what my experience of therapy has been. The counselor is in the room with you, but mostly it's about you talking to yourself, learning to reframe your thoughts and shift into healthier, better ways of seeing yourself. And at its best, that's what faith is as well. It's the reframing from an identity that's controlled by the twin devils of ego and shame. It's moving out of that towards a better understanding of yourself and the world through the eyes of God. As Hillary said, that internal reframing is incredibly important. And it can also be a really difficult thing to do on your own. So if I may interrupt this sermon for a quick word from our sponsors. Next Saturday, we're hosting a workshop with Pauline Steinman about spiritual friendship. My understanding of spiritual friendship is that it's one way of intentionally seeking out this kind of deep, meaningful relationship where you can work at these issues together with someone. Shame and self-identity don't tend to come up very often in casual conversation. We would much rather talk about the weather and our summer holiday plans, and those are good things. But intentionally building deep, honest, authentic relationships is a huge part of working through our shame, through vulnerability and empathy. I think that's where we're going with this workshop. Um, that's, I think, where, what Pauline will help us um, to move towards that. And I would look forward to learning together with you on that. So if we're wanting to build some authentic and meaningful relationships with each other, uh, we absolutely need to lean into vulnerability. If we want to build a relationship, create connection, and live wholeheartedly, we have to lean into vulnerability. We have to know when it's coming and lean into it. 
Since we're all very young, we've found ways to protect ourselves against from ourselves from vulnerability, uh, from being hurt, diminished, or disappointed. And I want to highlight a few ways that we protect ourselves from being vulnerable, which can prevent us from living wholeheartedly and creating those meaningful, authentic relationships within our community. And all these um, shields come from Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, which I suggest you pick up and read uh, the whole thing. There's like lots of great material in there for you to identify with. So uh, the first one that she talks a little bit about is foreboding joy. And this one I identify in my own life. Uh, foreboding joy is waiting for the other shoe to drop. So after you hear kind of, often I hear people talking about this moment and I think even the last few weeks I've heard people say, and I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And when something is going well, it's anticipating that something will go wrong. You know, uh, instead of leaning into the vulnerability that joy requires, we jump to the negative stuff right away, anticipating the worst as if to minimize vulnerability by trying to get to the worst case scenario first, beating vulnerability to the punch, if you will. Practicing gratitude is essential for working through kind of this vulnerability shield and to, to lowering that and, and helping us soften into joy uh, every day uh, of our lives. The second one is perfectionism. And perfectionism is kind of this 20-ton shield that we carry around, and I think most of us will identify with it. It's not about striving for excellence. Perfectionism is that belief that by doing things perfectly or looking perfectly, we can minimize or avoid pain of blame, judgment, or shame. Perfectionism at its core is about trying to earn approval. And so, in my work, I can sit on a piece of writing or something that I've worked on for hours and I can edit it and edit it and some more and I will wait until that last minute to just quickly just drop it in my boss's desk when she's not there to avoid judgment. <laughs> and I hate turning in my own work, but sometimes I just gotta commit to it and do it, lean into the vulnerability that will come with it and, and push through. And so that's kind of how Perfectionism works in some ways. So I can avoid having conversations about what I do it, um, and avoid this idea that it has to be perfect. It's, it's very challenging. To work through perfectionism, appreciating the beauty of the cracks is important. To be warm and kind to ourselves when we suffer or fail is essential and recognizing our common humanity and that we're all suffering and we experience that the experience of me isn't something that we experience alone, but we're all, we're all suffering. I think that's really important. And so these are the two big ones that are present in my life. It's, it's foreboding joy and perfectionism. These are the shields that I use to protect myself from leaning into vulnerability. Um, the third one, that shield that comes up, it's not as one of the major ones, but it's floodlighting and the smash and grab. Um, this is one of the less prominent vulnerability shields uh, that you know, Brené Brown talks about. But I, you know, use, love floodlighting. It's actually something that I used to do a lot. And I would do it when I met new people. And so this is essentially letting it all hang out. Instead of building a relationship in a step-by-step -step thoughtful manner, I used to just let it all hang out. Here's my entire life story. Now let me tell you about my family, my mom, my friends, my work, the things that I love and my hate. Let me tell you about my shame. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about my depression, my anxiety. Let me tell you about ADHD. Let me tell you about this. And they're just like, <laughs> right? We know that moment. So when someone shines a bright light in your face like that, what happens? You put your hands up, right? You block that light. Flight lighting is all about soothing one's pain, testing the loyalty and tolerance in a relationship, and are hot wiring a new connection. 
we've only known each other for like two weeks, but I'll share all this stuff now and we'll be BFFs forever. When we share our stories, especially shame stories, we often get pushed away. People recoil and shut down, compounding our own shame and disconnection. I knew I wasn't worthy enough for this person. And when we're on the receiving end of this, we wince, we look away, we feel depleted, confused, and sometimes even a little bit manipulated. And this kind of relationship building can get in the way of building true and real authentic relationships. And so this is something that I always, I, I famously did all the time, uh, and I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, I would tell, I would do this to test people, and you know, if they couldn't handle me, then you know, I would say to myself, I knew it, I wasn't good enough. So it's important to build relationships slowly and with little strands of lights, small, empathetic, and vulnerable conversations. Here's our small strand of lights of relationships. So one way that we can kind of work through floodlighting is to check our intentions. Why am I sharing this? What outcomes am I hoping for? What emotions am I experiencing? Do my intentions align with my values? Is there an outcome, response, or lack of response that will hurt my feelings? Is this sharing in service of connection? Am I genuinely asking the people in my life for what I need? And the final sheet that I want to talk about is uh, the smash and grab. And it's very close to floodlighting. If floodlighting is about misusing vulnerability, the second form of oversharing is all about using vulnerability as a manipulation tool. A smash and grab is when the burglar smashes through the window, grabs what she or he can, and runs. It's sloppy and unplanned. The social smash and grab is about smashing through people's boundaries with intimate information, then grabbing whatever attention and energy you can, get your hands on, and run. Again, a practice to work through the smash and grab, if you use this shield or you identify with it, is to just question your intentions. I think floodlighting and the smash and grab is probably the number one shield that I see pop up in community settings, uh, you know, uh, both here in the church and schools and all that, it's, it's very obvious. We strongly value sharing and connecting, but I think it also enables these shields if we're not cognizant of when they're being used by others or especially by ourselves. We absolutely need to lean into vulnerability, we have to identify when we're feeling it and keep pushing into, uh, into it a bit deeper and deeper. Our shared vulnerability creates light in normally dark places. A single light isn't very special, but an entire strand of sparkling lights is absolutely sheer beauty. It's the connectivity that makes them beautiful. When it comes to vulnerability, it means sharing our stories with people who have earned the right to hear them. People who we've cultivated relationships that can bear the weight of our story. Is there trust? Is there mutual empathy? Is there reciprocal sharing? Can we ask for what we need? These are crucial questions we need to ask in our community in order to help us build the little strands of light of connection between each other. There's a song that we're gonna watch the video for that captures very well what these moments of genuine connection can look like.
No, that wasn't Jeff. <laughs> Could have been, though. He's right there. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, that song's my jam. And that's cool. But I have a hunch that most of us end up in one of three places. Some of us are thinking, sure, that's easy for them to say. Seriously, she is gorgeous. He's so cool, he can wear that ridiculous hat with total confidence. Of course, he can sing just the way you are, because just the way they are is obviously pretty perfect. Some of us will just write this off as shallow fluff. Her eyes, her hair, the way she moves, that's just her appearance. It has nothing to do with how she really is. And some of us will reject the, the premise of this song entirely. And get real, do you see how much makeup she's wearing? They, say, they might say that they like the natural look, just the way you are, but what they don't know is how hard some women look, work to look natural. Just the way you are, that song is just help, helping to heap more pressure on women, that thing that Brene Brown was talking about, that you have to be perfect without looking like you're trying. And if anything, the video's impact is probably the exact opposite of its message. It's one more case of objectifying women and giving them an impossible standard to live up to. Fair points if you ended up in one of those places. And yet I think there is some deeper truth to this as well. Yes, reality is a lot more ugly than this video. But does that mean that it's not actually possible for someone to like you just the way you are? Or if you went to that place, is that deflection? Is that just a habit where we brush off even the most genuine compliment? When's the last time somebody said something nice to you when you simply agreed with their appreciation? Oh, if they really knew, they, they couldn't possibly have said that. They don't know what, what went into all this. Why do we deflect rather than accept appreciation from someone else? And yes, this song can be quite superficial. But imagine that phrase, I love you just the way you are. Imagine that being spoken at a 50th anniversary celebration. Isn't that what true love is ultimately about? Partners finally giving up on trying to impress each other and changing each other finding a way not just to coexist, but to deeply appreciate one another, just the way they are. Full, deep acceptance of the other. That's what this love is all about. I was uh, listening to this song while I was packing lunches for my kids this week, and I was crying listening to this song while I was packing lunches because that's, that's the love of a parent. That's what I want them to get across, just the way you are. And yes, these are incredibly attractive people. These are the guys who wrote that song. There's absolutely no part of any of that look that I could pull off. And yet, they're writing this song from their experience, where either they or the people that they encounter, the people they hang out with, actually are looking for this reminder that someone truly loves them just the way they are. Imagine that. Beautiful, young, talented, creative people also struggle with self-doubt, just like you. 
that really challenges that thing that you tell yourself that you would be happy with how you are if, if you could only lose the 10 pounds or whatever. Or maybe you're looking back and saying, well, I used to be, I used to be so happy with who I was. Really? Does that longing for true intimacy and acceptance actually haunt all of us, no matter what we look like and how creative and talented we actually are? So yes, the song is superficial and problematic in how it presents love. I won't argue with that. But I do think it's on to something, that that's what we all ultimately need. Some person, some relationship within ourselves, a community that accepts us just the way we are. I love the imagery of these words from the Apostle Peter. Peter used to be called Simon, a thoroughly flawed, reactive, weak disciple. And yet Jesus chose him and gave him a new name, Peter, meaning rock. And here Peter is using that rock imagery to accept and extend that invitation to a new way of self-understanding for God's people. Come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by mortals but approved nonetheless, chosen and precious in God's eyes. And you are living stones as well, being built into a monument of spirit. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called you out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once there was no mercy for you, but now you have found mercy, unearned acceptance and compassion. That is the journey out of shame. It's a turning away from secrecy, silence and judgment. It's embracing a new identity, grounded in mercy, grace, vulnerability, empathy, and self-acceptance. Out of darkness, into the marvelous light. What are the mighty acts of God? We are, you are. Creation is God's ultimate work, and you are God's good creation. Will you dare to believe that, to lean towards it, to call it out in each other? The credit goes to the one in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when they're in the arena, at best they win and at worst they lose. But when they fail, when they lose, they do so daring greatly. We don't have an arena here this morning. So the most daring thing that I can think to invite us to is to push our chairs back to make room for a wildwood dance floor. Yep, I am serious. For our final song, we're going to play that song again just the way you are. And I dare you to come and dance with me. Not like good dancing. Like <laughs> dancing for the fun of it. Dancing with abandon. Like the third hour of that really good wedding reception. I'm more of a singer than a dancer, so it really turns into halfway between karaoke and dancing for me. But whatever. If you're willing to give it a go, come forward. We're going to push the chairs back and we'll have some dancing. If that's not your thing, just help us to clear the dance floor, maybe move, move out of the way, and then feel free to sing, clap along, tap your toes, whatever you're able to do. And if this whole thing is too much for you, I understand. This is the closing song. I'll give the benediction, and you can feel free to just head on out into the, into the lobby and get started on the coffee time. So this will be our closing song. I, I'm still serious. Um, pay attention to whatever that's, <laughs> whatever's going on inside you. That's where your vulnerability comes from. This is the benediction. Whoever you are, you are loved. Wherever you go, God is there. And whatever you do, may you feel the presence of God moving 
with you, and through you, and in you. Amen. Now let's dance. Just the 